Welcome back to the 4 for 4 NFL Team Preview Series. We are back again with four great teams here in Week 3 as we get ready for the 2022 NFL season. I'm Mike Randall. You can follow me on Twitter at Randall Rand. Today we have one of the most fascinating teams, one that here in the fantasy community we're taking a huge interest in, the Jacksonville Jaguars. And no one better to cover Jacksonville than Mike, DeRoc Mike DeRocco, who covers the Jacksonville Jaguars for ESPN NFL Nation, does an amazing job, gives us a few minutes here as we head into the end of June, big time here for the NFL teams. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Mike. Thanks for having me. You can follow Mike on Twitter at ESPN Duraco, D-I-R-O-C-C-O. Mike, let's start with a season recap. I would think that for you, this was a pretty exciting season last year, maybe on and off the field combined with so much going on. No more Urban Meyer. He is out. Doug Peterson in. He brings credibility, Super Bowl championship. And with Philadelphia, they made the playoffs three of his five seasons. Talk about the change and what you've seen already here for Jacksonville heading into this year. You know, first of all, I'm not sure exciting would be the word I would use to describe <laughs> last season. Um, you ask Jaguar fans, they'd come up with a lot more, probably some four-letter words, uh, to be honest with you. But, you know, to me, you know, I was actually working on a, a training camp preview here, and, and one of the questions for uh, for us was, you know, what's the biggest offseason addition? And I could go through four or five players and pick that, but honestly, it's Doug Peterson because it, it's hard. Like, you don't – fans – don't understand, and I would say even players too, don't understand what it's the importance of having just like a normal, professional, functional head coach um, that just runs the organization in a professional way until you don't have it. <laughs> and the Jaguars didn't have it last year, and it was just a mess. I mean, you can pick any word, debacle, dysfunction. I mean, what all of it applied. But getting Doug Peterson has sort of calmed the waters significantly. And everybody feels like there's um, a legitimacy around the franchise now that, that just didn't exist last year. It, it was just such a mess. And we could spend hours going through all the problems last year. But with Peterson, they've got a guy who the first thing he said when he came into the, to the, the team meeting room with those guys for the first time was like, hey, look, you guys have gone through a lot. We have to heal. You have to, I have to earn your trust. You don't have to earn my trust. I have to earn your trust. And that went a long way with these players in just kind of settling things down and giving them the feeling that, you know what, as bad as everything was last year, everything's going to be okay now. And, and, you know, look, they've got issues with some talent at some spots and all that other stuff, but now they don't have to worry about all the other crap that they had to deal with with Urban Meyer. They don't have to worry about a, a head coach screaming at his assistant coaches or, or or screaming at the players or not knowing who's on the team, not knowing who's on the field, staying, you know, not coming back with the team on a road trip and getting caught in a bar uh, on video behaving inappropriately with a woman that wasn't. I mean, they don't have to worry about all that stuff. It's just back to football and how they can win games. And I don't think that we can overstate just how important that is for them. And you can feel it throughout the entire organization, not just the players, not just the assistant coaches, the business side, marketing, ticketing, upper management. You can feel how much more calm and how much um, happier really everybody is at this point. And that's all due to, to Doug Peterson, without question. Yeah, it starts at the top. And that's a big step in the right direction. 
And now let's see how that trickles down to the players. I want to start in the backfield with the running backs. Fantasy community, Mike, we are very high on Travis Etienne. Missed all of 2021 with the list Frank injury from the preseason. Certainly has that three-down ability. Can catch passes out of the backfield. Very explosive coming from Clemson. He compares favorably, a lot of people are saying, to DeAndre Swift. But where is James Robinson in his recovery? Sort of the workman, lunch pail guy who's always been able to produce no matter who the coach was or the offense. And do you see Etienne as a true RB1 or do you see, no matter what happens here, him maybe not getting the true 70%, 65% of the touches in the backfield? Etienne, James Robinson, how is that shaping up here for Jacksonville? Yeah, Etienne, or, uh, James Robinson is on pace in his recovery from the torn Achilles. Uh, the, the expectation is that he will be cleared fully sometime in camp, whether that's midway through camp or towards the end of camp. Um, still unclear at this point, but he's had no setbacks. He's right on pace. They're not rushing him because at this point, obviously, there's no need to. Um, they still view him as RB1, though, um, which is you know going to be an interesting mix with, with Travis and, and James there because my feeling originally and the things I had heard was that Travis would be the number one guy pretty much early in the season as, as Robinson tries to continue to get, you know, back up to speed from last year, but they view James Robinson as RB one. So it's going to be a little bit more of a mix uh, than I maybe thought it was before. It, it might not be that 70, 30, it might be a 60, 40 or 55, 45 type of thing there. It's going to be a little bit um, more of a shared load. And if you look at Doug Peterson's history with the, the Eagles, um, I don't think he ever had a thousand yard rusher. He had a guy, I think it was up around 900 yards. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but he did like to kind of spread it around a little bit. And he always had the big physical bruising back. And then a guy that, that could really be a factor in the passing game. And I think we'll see that is the area that Travis Etienne will make the biggest difference. I mean, people have talked and, and they've asked these questions about, oh my gosh, is he the next Debo? No, 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 no. He's not going to be the next Debo. He could be the next Kamara in terms of how they use him though. The running back that they line up outside as a pass receiver, that they really make an effort of getting the ball to in the slot, out wide, out of the backfield. So I think that's where he'll make his biggest impact. So we'll see James Robinson's touches definitely go down from the first two years when he was by far their really only effective back. Um, and he's actually not a bad receiver out of the backfield. Now, he's a really good pass protector, too, which is kind of important, as you know, obviously, that that will factor into some of the play time as well. But it's going to be an interesting mix. I do think that ETN's work might be still a little bit heavier at the beginning of the year as they kind of feel out just how good or how much um, you know Robinson is sort of healed from that Achilles and what his limitations are, if any. But once he's fully cleared and they're ready to go and, and they don't see any issues or limitations, then I still think at the end of the year, um, you know, he they'll view him as their RB1. He'll be their RB1, but it won't be by a wide margin. Yeah, ETN certainly going to be a factor in the passing game. And Mike, there are other weapons as well. Jaguars spent a good amount of money in the offseason. They brought in Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, Evan Ingram, still have Marvin, Marvin Jones. All he does is, is produce every year Marvin Jones. Darren Arnold as well. Certainly a lot of talent surrounding Trevor Lawrence. Now, Trevor Lawrence here, we really haven't, you know, like you said, coming off of last year, have seen a fair situation for Trevor Lawrence. 
there are there's talk out there that he's a great value, Mike, for NFL MVP with the odds that are floating around, things <laughs> like that. You know, maybe that's overstating it a little bit, but talk about this passing game. Lawrence here with Peterson, obviously a great head coach and really a nice cabinet of weapons, including ETN coming out of the backfield. Yeah, you know, Trevor, 12 touchdowns, 17 pass, uh, 17 interceptions last year. That's not great by any standards. But when you you factor in everything that he had to go through and the fact that he was the only guy that was up there every single week standing up in front of the media and eventually had enough and said, look, these distractions have to stop. You know, James Robinson needs to be on the field. I mean, you've got this 22-year-old kid who has to step into that situation and deal with all the stuff that was going on with Urban Meyer and the fact that he won over that leadership role, I mean, look, there are guys that have been in the league four, five, six, seven years that wouldn't be able to stand up in front of everybody and sit there and say, hey, look, the, the distraction's got to stop, coach. You know, it, that's a pointed message to his head coach. This has got to stop. This is not good enough. You're hurting us. Um, so from that standpoint, he was light years ahead of where he needed to be. But you're right. The, the numbers weren't great. And, and I don't know. I expect him to make a pretty big jump in year two. I don't know about the MVP stuff or whatever, but, you know, does that mean he's going to throw for 4,000 yards and 35 touchdowns? Yeah, probably not. But the bottom line is his top three receivers last year were Marvin Jones. He lost DJ Chark early in the season and LaVisca Chenault, who was tied for the uh, second in the NFL with eight drops. And the Jaguars led the league in drops. And, he was running the wrong routes later on in the end of the year. There's that really famous clip that showed, I think it was a December game where it's LaVisca cuts in and there's Marvin Jones. They almost run into each other. I mean, that stuff just, I mean, you can't, you can't function offensively like that. So adding Christian Kirk, who um, will do a lot of work in the slot, but also will be moved outside. Zay Jones gives them a guy that can go down the field, a deep threat. And you mentioned Marvin Jones, uh, obviously who is just a consistent machine but he's also what 32 years old and he played over 90 percent of the snaps last year so that's not good and that's also why they added some of these other guys to give him a little bit of a rest but to me i think probably the most underrated uh acquisition is evan ingram at tight end it's a one-year prove-it deal so those are always good for a team especially if you've got a guy who wants to who feels like he needs to prove it um but i mean you look at he's the you have to go back way, way back in the Jaguars early years when when a guy like uh, Kyle Brady um, was catching a lot of passes for this team with Coughlin and and, and Mark Brunel. I mean, Mercedes Lewis had a 250 catch seasons, but they really haven't had a guy like this. I mean, he's a wide receiver playing tight end. I expect him to have a big, big year. It would not surprise me if Christian Kirk is number one in receptions and Evan Ingram is number two. Uh, when the season's over, it just wouldn't. I mean, I just he gives them such um, a mismatch issue that I, I can't see them not taking advantage of that on a pretty regular basis. Now, we didn't get to watch every OTA, we only got one a week, media did, and he was by far one of the most impressive people out there. I mean, he just looks like a wide receiver running around out there, and he's fast and he's smooth. He's had some issues with drops, we know that, but. You know what? He gives them a weapon that they haven't had. So I really like that signing, probably even more so than the Christian Kirk signing, which is still a really good sign. Now, he's not a wide receiver one in the true sense of the Jamar Chase kind of wide receiver one. But, you know, they're going to move him around a ton and he's going to end up with a chance to have, you know, 80, 90 catches by the time the season's over and be a thousand yard receiver. He just missed it last year. 
So, I, I mean, he's got so many more weapons this year, Trevor does, without even mentioning ETN, that I can't see him really having the kind of year he had last year. He's going to have a really good year. But, again, those numbers will be a little bit, um, you know, maybe more reasonable than 4,035. But he, he, he certainly would be approaching that, you know, 28 touchdowns. And if you want him to keep that interception total to under 10, and then all of a sudden that second year jump is what you want to see. And then you figure going into year three with Doug Peterson and some more stability, who knows, you know, the ceilings, uh, the, there's no limit on where the kid could be in 2023. And of course the key here with Lawrence in this year is going to be the offensive line. Jaguars just came out PFF rated the number 26 offensive line green. Now they lost Brandon Linder, who was the best lineman, but they did bring in Brandon Sherp from Washington pro bowler five of the past six years. Jaguars need some improvement, I would think, from right tackle Jawan Taylor year four. How does the offensive line look coming into this year? Well, the, the right tackle battle between Jawan Taylor and Walker Little is probably going to be the most watched battle in training camp. Uh, Taylor, I, I was looking up these numbers for, for something uh, just before we, we were going to tape this. And, you know, he, he's led the league in, in penalties since he came into the league in 2019. He ranks 56th out of offensive tackles in ESPN's pass block win rate since 2019. I mean, that's just – that's not good enough. And and Walker Little, a second-round pick last year, the, the plan is for him to push this year, and the loser of that battle will end up being the swing tackle. But I fully anticipate Walker Little winning that battle. I, I just don't see how a guy can play badly for three years and all of a sudden turn it around. You know what I mean? I guess it does happen, but I expect Walker Little to win that job. The question with Scherf is he's going to be really, really good when he's there. But if you look at his injury history, he's probably going to miss a month uh, at some point this season, whether it's all at once or he's going to miss two games here, two games there. He, he hasn't played, I think, a full season since 2016. So that's an issue that you're going to have to deal with. Uh, center, at this point, it's Tyler Shatley. But the rookie from uh, Kentucky they took in the third round, Luke Fortner, will eventually win that job. Uh, and then you get to left guard, which would be Ben Barch, who – was okay last year and left tackles Cam Robinson, who they signed to an extension. But, you know, Cam Robinson's not one of the world beating guards or world beating tackles in the NFL. It's an, it's an okay offense. If all those things happen and Scherf's can stay healthy for 14, 15 games and Walker little plays the way we expect him to play, that could be an okay offensive line, uh, middle of the pack at best. But, you know, you can win in the NFL with a middle of the pack offensive line. That That is not a detriment to winning. A lot of teams win uh, and make the playoffs and make long playoffs. I mean, look at the, the Bengals. The Bengals offensive line by the end of the season last year was a mess, and they ended up in the Super Bowl because they had playmakers and a quarterback that could make some ungodly throws. So you got to hope for the Jaguar, if you're the Jaguar fans, that that offensive line can just play at that middle of the road level and you should be okay there. That was the comparison I was thinking about. You know, the big argument between Chase, we talked to Jay Morrison last week, Chase versus Penny Sewell. And in the end, they had the weapons, they had the system that they could overcome that offensive line and even come back on the road in Kansas City. So certainly Jacksonville has enough weapons here that if there are issues and the line doesn't come together as quickly, they can scheme around it. Absolutely. Mike, let's look at the defense. Struggled last year, 31st in DVOA per football outsiders. Only 32 sacks, seven interceptions, but things certainly looking up. Trevon Walker from Georgia. You know, many thought they were going to go Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan, but in the end, I think I, I saw on Twitter there for you that, that Walker is looking good. How's he doing so far, and how's this defense overall heading into this year? Well, Walker, it's hard not to watch that guy in drills um, and just – 
you know, standing on the sideline and not be impressed. He's just a physical specimen. I mean, he's got that those long arms, and he's so athletic and so quick for as big as he is, 270 pounds. I mean, from that standpoint, you can't just you you can't help yourself but go wow. Now he's raw. We all know that, and and Doug Peterson has made it, <laughs> you know, a priority to tell everybody. Mike Caldwell, the defensive coordinator, he's raw. He's going to need some work. But the hope is that that rawness is still impressive enough and he still is able to do some things to where opposing teams don't have to sit there and go, you know what, we'll just deal with Josh Allen on the other side. We don't have to worry about anybody else because that's where they were the last couple of years. Now, if you're Josh Allen, you're excited because that means, look, if this guy's any good, then I'm going to get fewer double teams. I'm going to get more uh, opportunities to make some plays. And he's admitted, hey, look, I've got to. I played at a really high level as a rookie in 2019, but Calais Campbell and Unique Ngakwe were there. So he's got to get better, and he's got to make some consistent plays. We saw what he's capable of in that game against the Buffalo Bills last year. We had an interception, fumble recovery, a sack against the other Josh Allen, as everybody around here likes to say. So it was it was by far his best game. Um, but they've made a lot of improvements on this defense. It's like $150 million in guaranteed money over the past two years in terms of free agency and some rookies. Um, they brought in Foyseid Aluokan from the Atlanta Falcons, who led the, the team in uh, the NFL in tackles last year. Foley Fadakasi, uh, the defensive lineman from the Jets, who's a really, really good run stuffer. They've totally rebuilt that linebacker room with Trayvon Walker and Devin Lloyd and Chad Muma. And in the secondary, they brought in Darius Williams uh, to play nickel for them, who was with the Rams and won a Super Bowl. So they've added a lot of guys to this unit. It needs to be significantly better this year. And, and you know, Shaquille Griffin was a, an okay signing for them last year. That signing looks so much better if he hangs on to any of the four interceptions that he dropped. He didn't have a single pick and he dropped four. And that's sort of been the thing that's fueled him this offseason. So they've you know, we talk about the lack of sacks, that seven turnovers. They, they, you can't win in the NFL if you're not forcing turnovers. You, you just can't do it. And it's going to be a major priority for them in the offseason. And, and like I said, when you invest that much money on that side of the ball over two years, there's only two guys left from that 2020 defense that was the worst in the league. It's Josh Allen and Adam Gotsis, who's now a, a reserve defensive end. So they've totally flipped it. You, you make that kind of investment, it better start paying off. Now, the question is, you got a first-year coordinator in Mike Caldwell. Now, he studied under Todd Bowles, so that's obviously a positive. But how is he going to deploy some of these assets? And what are they going to do in terms of um, against the run? They feel like they're going to be better. I mean, it, it does remain. It, it, there's just a lot of talent there, but you also have to sit there and go, I got to see it first. But there's a lot of optimism in Jacksonville that that defense can go from, I guess, bottom third to middle third, maybe even you know, top 12, top 13, top 14, if everything goes the way that they expect. Yeah, last question here, Mike. Uh, per Warren Sharp strength of schedule, which looks at projected win totals, Jacksonville 12th easiest schedule. Their win total in Vegas is six. Like you said, last year had three. Big win over Buffalo. There were some moments there as well. And you have a whole new mindset here with Doug Peterson. So talk about the schedule and what you see here for Jacksonville in 2022. The unfortunate thing for the Jags is they play the AFC West this year. This is the one year you probably didn't want to play the AFC West with that group of quarterbacks. Love it. Love it. it is like, look, so you're own four starting off on that one. I, I know they get the Broncos in London, but I mean, look, you just, 
you just start off think, looking at it going, okay, they're 0-4 there. Uh, they play in a bad division. The AFC South is, is not good. It really isn't. I mean, the Colts are – Matt Ryan is 75 years old. Um, so, I mean, Jonathan Taylor is a massive, you know, problem for, for teams in that division. How much longer are the Titans going to be able to ride Derrick Henry and Ryan Tannehill? You know what I mean? I've never been a Tannehill guy. Um, you know, I think we saw in the postseason last year what, what problems they could potentially have at that position. So it might get to Jenga puzzle. If Henry isn't rolling there for Tennessee, everything sort of crumbles a little bit. Yep. It does. It does. And it's in, you know, the Texans are still a mess. Uh, so there is the opportunity for the Jaguars to make some hay in the division. But when I look at that schedule and, you know, they're, they've got Dallas at home, they're at Philly, they're at Washington. Uh, I, I just, I, when the, the win totals came out and it was six and a half, I think originally I was just, I looked at it and thought, well, I, I just can't see him winning more than six, you know, and, and that's if everything goes right and everybody stays healthy and, tra and Trevor Lawrence makes the leap and the defense is better and Trayvon Walker, you know, can roll up four five, six sacks by the end of the season as he's trying to figure this out and, and James Robinson stays healthy and Brandon Scherf stays healthy. You know, there's just so many, and it's like that for most teams too, but when you have no margin of error, and the Jaguars are still a franchise at this point anyway that doesn't have much of a margin for error. Things have to go perfectly for you to win games. And I just, you know, I can see him maybe winning seven, but boy, anything beyond that I think would be, if they win eight or nine games, then they're going to build a statue of Doug Peterson outside the stadium. They will knock down the big giant Jaguar statue and erect one of Doug Peterson because it would be amazing if they could win that many games. Hey, he's already been a part of having that Nick Foles statue, right? I mean, so statues could follow Doug Peterson where he goes. Folks, that was amazing insight here from Mike DiRocco at ESPN. DiRocco covers Jacksonville for ESPN NFL Nation. Does an amazing, amazing job here. Definitely follow him. Great work. He's got videos going on Twitter. Mike, we thank you so much for a few minutes here at 4 for 4. Jacksonville is an intriguing team in the fantasy community. A lot of weapons here. And like you said, culture change, which I think is the best part overall. Awesome. Thanks for having me. And I was remiss in not mentioning that that's another reason why Doug Peterson was a massive upgrade because he won a Super Bowl with Nick Foles. And the people here in Jacksonville saw Nick Foles a couple of years after that for four games. And I believe they understand how important of an accomplishment that was. Absolutely. No doubt. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Today, we are joined to look at the Detroit Lions, a team that is very interesting here on the national landscape and in the fantasy world. And we are joined by the perfect person to give us insight, Dave Burkett on Twitter at Dave Burkett, three-time Michigan Sports Writer of the Year, covers them for the Detroit Free Press. Dave, I remember seeing so much great work leading up to the draft that you did this coming year and really look forward to talking to you here about the Lions for a few minutes. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing all right. And I listen, I think from a national perspective, we were a little apprehensive of Dan Campbell coming in, the biting kneecaps, the stories, the, the latte. I think he had the coffee. But certainly this team played very hard for Campbell throughout the season. They did go three and three down the stretch. They tied the Steelers in week 10, which could have easily been a win. Beat Green Bay week 18, close losses to Cleveland, Chicago, and of course the Baltimore game week three was fantastic. Need the 66-yarder from Justin Tucker. I'd say pretty good year overall for Campbell in year one, no? 
Well, I, you know, I think um, there was a lot of positivity and optimism coming out of the year. But, you know, anytime you go through 13 and one, I don't, I don't know that it was a great year. But you're right. The Lions had a lot of opportunities last season. They lost three times on on field goals at the very end of games, including that 66 yard that you referenced from the Ravens. Um, and I, I do think people across the league sort of took note of, of how hard Dan had this this young, you know, uh, under talented, I guess, team compared to some of their peers playing at the end of the season and when they really had nothing to play for. And, and so that's part of the reason there's a lot of optimism going into this year. Uh, add in the fact that they had a couple high draft picks that they return, you know, a, a pretty good offensive line. And, and I do think the Lions should take a step forward in year two of Dan Campbell this fall. Yeah, offensive line looks to be very, very strong. I want to start here. Uh, of course, where we're going to begin before we get to Jared Goff is DeAndre Swift in the backfield. In the fantasy community, Dave, we love Swift. Versatility, pass catching, had three games with seven or more receptions, fourth in targets among running backs, fourth in, re in receptions, had a 67% snap share, so he's on the field a decent amount. But my question is, do the Lions view him as this sort of all-purpose back, or is it always, in your mind, going to be something where they lean towards Jamal Williams having somebody else in there? And, of course, uh, assistant head coach, running back coach Deuce Staley recently challenged Swift. I saw a report on that saying there's a difference between being injured and hurt. It gave me memory of the program, the movie, uh, football movie, the program from years ago. So what's your read on Swift here heading into the season for the Lions? Yeah, no, they do look at him as this, you know, multi-dimensional, versatile back, you know, guy that is the the leader of their backfield. But, and this is where the the Jamal Williams thing comes in, is you know when they tried to give Swift a, a few more touches last year, that's when he got hurt, and and so that's the one thing that the Lions have been, you know, conscious of with him. Really, you go back to training camp last year, you know, they they took things slowly with him, trying to get him ready for the regular season, the right approach, but they didn't want to overwork him early in the year. He was productive, as you mentioned. I think it was the, uh, the Steelers game when he had 30 rushes. And uh, that in, in Cleveland, uh, you know, he, he sort of banged his shoulder in that game, uh, came back a couple weeks later and, and aggravated it again. And, and that's when he missed a couple weeks. And so I do think you will see, even though Swift is the clear number one in the backfield, you know, the Lions will use Jamal Williams enough that they, they don't want to overwork Swift early. So um, you know, as I think for fantasy purposes, I, I think Swift is probably getting 20 couple touches a game between rushes and receptions, which is a good number, you know, and, and especially if you're in a PPR league, because there you know, there could be a half dozen or so of those that are, um, you know, uh, uh, catches, receptions there. So but don't don't go into it expecting that he's going to get a Derrick Henry like workload. Got it. Yeah. And of course, his success tethered to the offensive line. Lions have built themselves one of the best offensive lines in the league. PFF came out with their ratings. The Lions are third overall, three first rounders, a third rounder, highly paid free agent on the line, really looking to reap the benefits here. You have high-end talent, Frank Ragnow, Penny Sewell was the high pick last year, can really be top five. I don't see any holes, and I think this really is one of the foundational pieces for offensive success for the Lions this year. Oh, I agree. And that's how the Lions view it as well. And that's sort of why they they built it the way they did. You know, you go back to the the draft last year and what Brad Holmes said was he wanted to build a monster. And, and you know, he looked back to to the way the, the the Rams built their team when he was there and they took, you know, Michael Brockers or they took Robert Quinn first, I guess. Right. And, and then Aaron Donald and Michael Brockers. And they, they so they stacked all these defensive linemen on top of each other and really had a, 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 you know, one of the better defensive fronts in the league. And that's what he wanted to do with the Lions offensive line, that even though they had Taylor Decker, and they had Frank Reg now a couple number ones. You know, he saw an opportunity in Panay Sewell to to really add another top end talent to that team. So 
beyond the starting five, they, they have their top three reserves back too. And not that you want to, you know, get into that depth, but there is enough depth for the inevitable injury that, that comes about. The one thing that would concern me about the line is that, you know, Taylor Decker um, obviously missed some time last year. Uh, end of the season, you know, he he injured his foot. He left that that season finale and the Lions still held him out, you know, of, of minicamp for the most part. He wasn't really doing much. A um, little bit of a red flag there that, that six months later, he's still dealing with, you know, something that, that he and Dan said were related to that initial injury. Now, again, it's right to be to be, uh, you know, conscious of that at this this point in time. And Taylor said he'll be ready to go week one and when training camp rolls around. But, you know, in my head as a reporter, that's just something that, um, you know, I'll be keeping tabs on all, all summer. You know, and it's a big year for Jared Goff, a sort of a prove it year, I think, Dave. Need to see if he's the answer at quarterback. Still only 27 years old, had an 11 to 11 touchdown, two interception ratio from weeks 11 to 18. So he had a good stretch there for a while. Detroit's last five starts lines went three and two. Goff's passer rating over 107. They have some new weapons this year, which we'll get into, but I think this is a big year for Goff, right? A uh, big year. You know, I, I certainly have. Uh, you know, said this many times that, you know, I, I think the one thing that could hold this offense back is is Jared Goff, you know, and, and so it's it's up to him really to to prove to a lot of people around the NFL that he's not going to be the anchor of what could be a pretty good offense. And, um, you know, the, the Lions are optimistic because of what he did the second half of last season after the Lions changed play callers midway through the season. Um, you know, Ben Johnson, their new offensive coordinator, was uh, essentially became the pass game coordinator. Dan Campbell was the one call in place. That's when we saw the best Jared Goff on the field last season. And he he actually won three of his last four starts because he missed some time with COVID and in an injury late in the season. So um, the Lions do think with a, a more well-rounded offense, having more parts in the receiving core, um, maybe getting back to some of the things that Jared did well early in his Rams days, more of that play action stuff um, that that they can you know get some really good play out of Jared. There's there's doubts across the league and he's going to have to prove it on the field, uh, but he does have the weapons that he didn't have last year to be an effective quarterback. Yeah, and the weapons, let's talk about them. Amara St. Brown, great year here, sort of really came on 90 receptions, almost a thousand yards. But that that production, I think, Dave, was sort of tethered to TJ Hawkinson's absence at tight end. Hawkinson, I still think, obviously, the top choice, especially with Goff with the throws he prefers to make. You bring in DJ Chark, super athlete here, but has struggled with injuries. He can stay healthy. You have Jamison Williams coming back from injury, of course, Alabama with the with the 12th overall pick. Give me a rundown of sort of the, the, the pecking order of this receiving core because a healthy Hawkinson, and this is a pretty solid group of receivers, you include Swift. Yeah, no, and I think you make a good point about the throws that, that Jared likes to make, right? He's not a guy that presses the ball downfield a lot. Um, you know, some of those, those tight window throws, he'd rather – throw elsewhere, at least from what we've seen from him in here in Detroit. And the start of last season, I mean, TJ Hawkinson was really his his number one weapon, and he went to him a whole lot those first couple games. Ultimately, the you know defenses realized the Lions had no one else at that point in time, and so they just they sort of clamped down on Hawkinson. And, and when Hawkinson was hurt late in the season, Amon Ross St. Brown, um, because the Lions had no one else, became their go-to in, in really every aspect of the offense. He emerged enough and he did enough, though, that I, I do think he's going to have another really good season. Um, maybe not. Maybe we don't see an increase in catches from him because of, you know, all the weapons the Lions have on offense now. But I do think, you know, maybe more productive within the, the opportunities that he has. I think it was 900 yards last year. I expect him to go over a thousand yards this year. It's really, you know, as I look at the receiving core, um, you know, St. Brown probably leads this team in touches just given the health and the way they use him. But, you know, Chark is going to be a, a pretty big factor. 
um, as an outside receiver. It's just the injuries that concern you a little bit there. Jamison Williams, certainly he's going to be in the mix too, but um, Lions are in no rush to get him on the field. Possibility that he opens a year on Pup, even if he doesn't, I would expect that he misses a couple games early in the season. So don't draft him in your fantasy drafts thinking he's going to be your number one receiver in September and October. Yeah, and Chark, if anything, can open up the field. You mentioned it with Hawkinson. Started the year last year, 10 targets, 9 targets, 8 targets, 3 of the first 4 games, and had 4 games of 8 or more receptions. So when he's healthy, you know, you really have a good route tree here for Goff to take advantage of some opportunities. Let's look at defense, 29th in DVOA for football outsiders, second worst against the run. Certainly Aiden Hutchinson helps solidify that defensive line. Drop to you in number two there, and I saw your videos talking about that. I think that certainly was a great pick. Only 30 sacks last year, third fewest in the league. Jeff Okuda, I think, is coming back. You can give an update on him. How do you see the defense this year for Detroit? Yeah, I'm still a question for them because it's still young, and there's a lot of moving parts on that side of the ball. You know, they, they sort of have changed schemes a little bit. They're going to more of an even man front just want to be a little more attacking up front which should help the the pressure numbers right they, they should put up more sacks you know the one area that that the lions have uh, you know sort of voiced some concerns about is they're not they're not quite as big up front this year um you know john penasini backup you know wouldn't have been a factor in any sort of you know adp leagues or anything like that but he's uh, you know he's a guy that um you know, added some some meat and, and some some you know girth to the run game, and, and they just they don't have that now. And, and so you know, Lee McNeil is sort of the 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 one you know, true run stopper they have up front. Um, I do think the the defense is going to be better though too, um, just based on I mean they were so young last year and they are a year older now. And that secondary, there are some injury concerns back there. Jeff Okuda, you know Jerry Jacobs, who started about ten games at cornerback, he's coming off an ACL. Um, but those guys all take a step forward and there's a little bit more depth, not just up front, but in the back end as well. Um, I, you know, this is a, it, it the offense, um, certainly there's more talent there. And I think offensively they can carry this team, but defensively don't underestimate what Aaron Glenn, who will be a head coach in the NFL in a year or two and, and Aubrey Pleasant, the secondary coach, what they can get those young guys in the secondary to do. Yeah. Great point. Well coached as well. And certainly has the right mentality and the team chemistry. Dave, last question for you here. Lions schedule and projection. Fifth easiest this season per Vegas opposing win totals. Three wins last year, six and a half win total this year. This is a pretty competitive Lions team. Ended on a great note, faced some adversity. How do you see the schedule and how do you see the season going so far? For uh, Well, I'm taking the over, but just barely. I mean, I, I do think the Lions take a, a step forward. I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of talk right now about the Lions being a, a playoff team. And, you know, this the optimism is sort of running wild. It always, it always really is in, in Detroit, uh, you know, the, this time of year. Um, you know, I, I right. The Jets, the Giants, the Jaguars, the Panthers. I mean, the NFC North is down. You, you look at the schedule and there are a lot of wins there, but Let's not forget a lot of those teams are looking at the Lions as a very winnable game, too. So I see the Lions taking a step forward um, in part because of the schedule, in part because I think some of the young guys are, are ready to perform and in part because of some of the uh, the pieces they have on offense. But, you know, I think seven and ten is a, a realistic expectation for this team. Um, and if they go somewhere in that finish somewhere in that realm. Um, you can look at 2023 with a couple more first-round picks and, and with Dan Campbell continuing to, to sort of build his program and really see that as a breakout year for the Lions.
folks. Great insight here from Dave Burkett. Even gave us some fantasy insight, which we always appreciate. On Twitter, at Dave Burkett, Michigan Sports Writer of the Year, three times writes for the Detroit Free Press. Dave, thank you so much for a few minutes here. It's going to be a great season, and we're very invested here in the Lions and the fantasy community, so we appreciate the insight. You got it, Mike. We'll talk to you again. Today, we're going to talk with the great Luke Jones here about the Baltimore Ravens. And the Ravens are certainly a team that is really interesting given their past success, injury problems last year, and a lot of potential this year. Please follow Luke on Twitter at Baltimore Luke. He covers the Ravens for WNST, BaltimorePositive.com. He's joining the past, gives great insight. Luke, thanks so much for joining us here at 444. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you? Thanks for having me. We are thrilled, Luke. We're going through each one of the 32 NFL teams, four per week, and now we turn to the Ravens. And listen, it's been quite a run for Baltimore since John Harbaugh has come aboard. Ton of injuries last year, had their first losing season since 2015, going 8-9 and and finishing last in the division, which may help you with the schedule this year. First time they were last since 2007, and that was pre-Harbaugh, of course. I think it's a bounce back year for Baltimore. One of the top teams in the NFL of the past 15 years. Is that the feeling around the team and the fans heading into 2022? Yeah, I, I think that's the feeling. I think it's just a matter of to what degree uh, is the bounce back? Is it going to be being where they were a few years ago, where they in 2019, they're 14 and two, best point differential the NFL had seen since the 07 Patriots. And then we saw what happened in the divisional round against Tennessee. You know, since then, of course, they made the playoffs in, in 20. Uh, they won a playoff game before they, they fell to Buffalo in the divisional round. And then, as you mentioned, all the injuries last year. I mean, this was a team that was eight and three. They were the number one seed going into that first weekend in December. Uh, and then they lost their last six to fall to eight and nine. I mean, it, it's tough because right off the bat, 12 one score games they played last year. Uh, they lost their opener in Vegas against the Raiders, which was a one score game in overtime. And then they won five, you know, f they actually won six straight one score games. And then they lost five straight one score games. So, you know, to sum that up, that's a lot of, variance you know from week to week and i think anyone who followed this team wasn't quite believing they were eight and three good in early december but you lose lamar jackson you lost marlon humphrey your best defensive player uh, in that pittsburgh game yeah and they were unlucky down the stretch too i mean that, the worm turned in, in that regard so plenty of reason for a bounce back but when you are counting on so many injured players coming back knowing that not all of them are necessarily going to be the player they were before. There's a little more uncertainty. So, you know, my overall theme for the offseason has been half full, half empty. I mean, how do you look at the Ravens? I think the half full is, yeah, they're a serious Super Bowl contender and they have a former MVP and they come back healthy and they're deep on both sides of the ball. And great. I think the half empty, which isn't a doomsday scenario, but some some of those guys that I mentioned, you know, and we'll get into some of the specifics uh, I know at some of the positions, but they come back and they're not quite as th the same player. They're not fully healthy. Maybe they're on the field, but they're not the same guy. That's where I think this team, especially in a loaded AFC, maybe is a little more, okay, that, then you're talking a wild card scenario. And yeah, I think they, good chance to make the playoffs, but certainly not looking like that juggernaut at the top of the conference under those uh, terms. Yeah, it's a great point. And the injuries, listen, started right at the beginning of the year. It's all Lamar all the time in Baltimore. But I want to start with that backfield because it's really one of the most difficult positions for us in fantasy world to project because this team loves to run. And Baltimore led the league in rushing attempts 2018, 2019, 2020. And it wasn't particularly close. 2019 Baltimore, that, like you said, 14-2, and two, 
36.8 rushing attempts per game. That was four more per game than San Francisco that year. Now, last season, in the preseason, lost J.K. Dobbins, torn ACL. Lost Gus Edwards, torn ACL. He lost Marcus Peters also. And Justice Hill goes out, torn Achilles. So please give us a status update here. Backfield, where are these running backs? How do you see it starting the year? And how do you see the touch distribution when everyone finally returns? Well, that's the big question, Mike. And I'm not sure I can give you a lot of clarity right now. It uh, is Justin, June. It's June. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Justice Hill was back on the field during OTAs and during mandatory minicamp. However, he's going into the final year of his rookie deal. He, he's played sparingly. He's been much more of a special teams guy and at best uh, an occasional change of pace. Uh, so I don't even know if he's going to be on the 53-man roster when it's all said and done. But uh, the reports, uh, as co according to the team, and, and it's rare when a team is going to publicly say, oh, these guys aren't coming along as quickly as we'd like, but you know, it sounds favorable. It sounds promising for J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards. Uh, they haven't taken part in any spring uh, workouts, anything like that, which was expected. They were always going to slow play those guys. My gut tells me we'll at least see them begin training camp on the PUP list, which keep in mind, during training camp, they can they can be activated from that whenever. It's not talk. We're not talking about the regular season scenario. Uh, so, if everyone comes back and is healthy, and 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 Edwards and Dobbins are at least close to being 100% in terms of workload purposes, I like J.K. Dobbins to be the one leading the way here. But I think you probably look at it, go back to 2019 uh, when Mark Ingram was the lead back. But oh yeah. Oh, yeah, you still had Lamar Jackson carrying the ball 176 times, and he carried it, what, 159 in 2020. I don't think you're going to – maybe not going to see Lamar carrying it 176 times, but he's still going to be a big part of the running game. That's why Lamar's Lamar, right? Uh, Edwards has kind of been in that 130 to 140, 145 territory over his first few seasons with the Ravens when he's been healthy. So they love him in short yardage. They love him goal line. So he's not going to – disappear. But I think you look at Mark Ingram, who was right around 200 carries at 202 carries in 2019 and made the Pro Bowl that year. Uh, you know, to me, that's where I would look at Dobbins. If Dobbins and Ingram uh, and not Ingram, if Dobbins and Edwards are right come week one. But I think it's tough to really know that for certain right now. They did add Mike Davis, of course, you know, Panthers fans, Christian McCaffrey, uh, handcuff fans uh, will, will be aware uh, of him. Uh, so, you know, not not a very high ceiling there necessarily, but does bring a little bit more of a floor. Uh, and they did draft Tyler Beatty out of Missouri, uh, you know, more of a receiving minded back in the sixth round who actually did a nice job this spring. So don't think he'll necessarily get carries, but if he's in the mix, could get you some of those limited receptions in a Greg Roman offense. So long story short, I don't have a ton of clarity for you right now, but if everyone is healthy, I think what we saw from J.K. Dobbins down the stretch in 2020, I mean, he averaged six yards per carry. You know, that that's special. If he's right, I think he's the guy that leads the way. But with Lamar, with Gus Edwards, who's been nothing but productive in his career, it's really tough to look at the situation and say, well, wow, that guy's going to be, a you know, you should take in the first round or second round of your fantasy draft that he's going to be a bell cow because that's just not how a Greg Roman offense has operated over the years, even taking out the injury factor. Edwards is super efficient. Any Anything you're hearing about which one is closer? I read a report recently that maybe Edwards is a little closer, but I don't know if that was correct. 
Yeah, and the Ravens are not a team that that goes and discusses specifics, so it's it can be tough to get some of the information. I know some of the you know the different reports out there of you know David Chow, the team doctor, you know former Chargers team doctor who has has built you know kind of a brand as far as talking about injuries and some other medical expert media types have had acknowledged that there had been some reports on J.K. Dobbins maybe having a little more of a severe knee injury at the time, but keep in mind. He hurt his knee last August. Gus Edwards was literally just a few days before the start of the regular season last year. So from a calendar standpoint, that would lead you to believe these guys have had a longer period of time than if they tore their ACL in week seven or, or week 12 of the regular season. So, you know, I, it, it, by most accounts, it seems like Edwards was had a little bit of a cleaner injury uh, in that regard. But uh, again, the, the Ravens have been pretty hush-hush other than just saying they're both making progress. I mean, you can follow them on Instagram and see they're, they're working out. J.K. Dobbins uh, was on the field a little bit off to the side during OTAs, catching some passes from a jugs machine, but he was standing in a stationary position, so nothing to really glean there. So uh, it's just tough right now. I think the big key for that is hopefully, uh, if you're thinking in fantasy purposes, your draft is much later in the preseason, and you can at least get to the point where you're seeing these guys are practicing Hearing reports from from individuals like myself who are out there on the, on an everyday basis in Owings Mills and and kind of see where they're going, but you know they're they're going to be careful. And again, when you already have a, a by committee approach, uh, certainly uh, they're going to try to bring these guys along as slowly as they can to make sure that they're really really healthy. So I, again, that doesn't probably doesn't help anyone listening right now trying to figure out what to do with those guys because when they're healthy, we know they're uh, great options to to have in the mix on your roster. That's for sure. No, but it's insight. And, and a lot of the redrafts go later in the summer. So it is helpful, something to keep an eye on because of their rushing production that they have when they're healthy. Let's look at Lamar Jackson at quarterback. Look, there's been this polarizing comment that comes out on Twitter that he can't throw effectively. Last year, in many ways, was his best year throwing the ball per Warren Sharp, early down passing outside the numbers. Always a tough throw for quarterbacks. Number one in yards per attempt, 9.2. Number one in success rate, 57%. And number one in expected points added per attempt, 0.33. All this while he was getting 9.4 air yards per attempt, which was fifth among quarterbacks. And he was being blitzed an excessive amount of times because of the injuries and the problems that they had there. So what do you see with Lamar? And is there really, Luke, a chasm of difference between how he's viewed among Baltimore fans and how he's viewed by sort of popular media here across the country? I mean, I think it's polarizing wherever you go. I mean, I, I think you'll have certainly more Ravens fans, you know, the, defending the the more reasonable position and looking at the numbers. Uh, but you still have detractors in the same way there were detractors when Joe Flacco was winning a Super Bowl a decade ago. And, and I mean, you're always going to have that. That's what that's why we love sports, right? You and I can debate and talk about these things as we are right now. But you know, I, I think with Lamar, the truth falls somewhere in between those two extremes. I mean, is he the best pocket passer in the NFL? Of course not. Uh, is he a running back and can't throw and, and some of the idiotic takes that you see on social media? Of course not. I mean, the numbers, a guy doesn't lead the NFL in touchdown passes three years ago by accident, right? Uh, but I think you do have to look at how the Ravens have structured their offense. I mean, it, it is an offense that has had a lot of structure. It's been based around the running game, as it should be. When you're talking about having, uh, for my money, the greatest rushing quarterback in NFL history, uh, and certainly 2,000-yard uh, rushing seasons would support that. Uh, but you look at the structure, 
it, it isn't the most complicated in terms of routes being run and Ravens wide receivers such as Marquise Brown, even Willie Sneed. Guys have talked about that. There is, and I don't even want to say it's a narrative because it's come to fruition and guys have even acknowledged it. They have had some difficulty with bringing in wide receivers you know, from the outside because it's not the same high volume offense. But you mentioned it. First five games last season, he looked like he was going to be another MVP candidate. And I mean, he was averaging 9.1 yards per attempt, eight touchdowns, three interceptions. I think completion percentage was right around 67%. But his last seven games, and again, lots of factors, offensive line. I think the running game, the the schemed up running game, not being nearly as explosive was a big part of that. They did have to lean a little more on the passing, which early on I think was a, a good thing but I think it hurt them as the season went on because a lot of teams started blitzing them. And we saw famously that ugly, just absolutely ugly Thursday night loss in Miami where they blitzed them like crazy. And he really struggled with it. And his last seven games, which parts of seven games, you know, he he missed some action in there uh, with the Cleveland game with the ankle, but 62% completion percentage, eight touchdowns, 10 interceptions dropped to 6.3 yards per attempt. So, Quite a contrast there. Was it all Lamar? Of course not. But I think that's where it's interesting now going into 2022. Marquise Brown no longer here. You look at how the Ravens have kind of built their roster. Uh, You know, they've focused on the offensive line. They added two tight ends in the fourth round. So, you know, I don't think that is evidence that you're going to see Lamar throw the ball more. I think if anything, you're going to see them try to maybe get a little bit more back to where they were 2020, 2019, and really hope they're more efficient like they were in 2019, where say what you want about the volume and the, and the number of passing attempts, but you no know, football outsiders had them DBOA number one in the league passing offense. And as I mentioned, Lamar leading the league in touchdown passes. I don't think you're going to duplicate that, but I think they're trying to get much more back into that territory than than this mindset of maybe opening up the passing game because, you know, while it they had some success last year, it got them into trouble. And again, not because of Lamar solely, but, uh, you know, they, they they had their struggles and, and he had his struggles as the season went on last year as well. Yeah, that passing game is real interesting. Marquise Brown, now in Arizona, breakout year with Jackson last year, 91 receptions, over 1,000 receiving yards. All this loop, despite really having a lot of drops, seven drops, including some memorable ones against Detroit, could have been a touchdown week three, Baltimore used that 23rd pick they got from Arizona. They swap it. They go to to Buffalo with it, get the 25th and 130th pick. They always draft well. I mean, the front office, that's what the Ravens do. This year, no exception. But they did get a lot of defensive players. So my question is, it seems to us, obviously, Mark Andrews, fantastic tight end, going to get a lot of targets, of course. But can Rashad Bateman really step into that role? Because as you said, I don't know if you can support multiple receivers in terms of fantasy production, but after Bateman, it's re- pretty much Devin Duvernay. So there is sort of a drop off there. How do you see the passing weapons here in, in the upcoming season? Yeah, and that's where my concern lies. And going back to your original question about whether the Ravens are going to be, you know, how much are they going to bounce back? That's where I do look at the passing game. And I do wonder because, you know, I look at 2019 and yes, it was incredibly efficient. And everyone will remember Mark Andrews. They had first round pick Hayden Hurst, who they then dealt. Uh, but they had those two and, and Nick Boyle. They had three t- three tight ends that all that caught 30 or more passes with Andrews, of of course, having the major uh, share of the volume there. So, you know, with them drafting two tight ends in the fourth round, uh, as you mentioned, they did not select a wide receiver to this point. They have not added a veteran wide receiver. And that's something, you know, last year it was Sammy Watkins. We've seen, you know, go back to the Joe Flacco era. Typically, it was to make a veteran addition at some point. And they haven't done that, which 
you know, they, they, they've kind of been hit or miss. Uh, I mean, Watkins, his, his impact was minimal last year, so I'm not saying that that's the way to go, but it's tough for me because it felt like this team was finally getting in a position where their wide receiver room, which is something I banged the table about not being good enough for probably as long as I, since I've covered the team, which has gone back more than a decade now, you know, that's, that's always been an Achilles heel for them. Uh, despite all the successes you mentioned that, that they've had drafting. Uh, you could, so Luke, you could bring back the guy over my shoulder here, Steve Smith. Uh, you know, yeah. remember those? Anquan Bolden. How about, uh, yeah, I mean, Anquan Bolden, what, you know, they, they signed Joe Flacco and trade Anquan Bolden right away, which is, you know, still for me, the dumbest move in, in franchise history, which there haven't been many dumb moves, but that was one that I'll, I, I'm not going to give them a pass on. But to, to get back to what you were saying, I do like Rashad Bateman a lot. I think he showed uh, a lot of promise last year. I think you know, beyond those top three that went in the 2021 draft at, at the wide receiver position, he was, I think, the, the popular choice to, as a, you know, at least a, close to being a consensus fourth best receiver in that draft. Uh, and, and he showed so, some good things last year. But I think what's tough is got hurt during training camp, didn't have that that practice time with Lamar Jackson, who remember Lamar had COVID at the very beginning of that camp. So they only had a few days together on the field last summer. And then he's thrown back into the mix come October. And before you know it, Lamar Jackson's hurt in early December. So these guys just haven't played a whole lot. So it's going to be so important for him to just stack reps, stack days throughout the summer. Uh, but I like I, I like him. I like his potential. You know, whether that means he's going to be a thousand yard receiver or is he at 850, 900? I mean, again, the volume here and knowing that Mark Andrews is truly the number one guy uh, in this passing attack, you know, from a receiving standpoint makes it tough. But I'm with you beyond that. I know the Ravens have talked him up a lot. You know, the, the team website's really trying to to sing, a, you know, share a message that DuVernay and James Prochet was a sixth round pick who actually, to his credit, had a couple games last year where he had some opportunities and put up some numbers. Uh, and Tylen Wallace, who was a fourth round pick last year, who didn't get really didn't get much of an opportunity. But I just look at that and I say, okay, if you're truly a team that's fancying itself as being a Super Bowl contender, being a, a high upper echelon right there with Buffalo, Kansas City, Cincinnati in terms of the, just their pure passing game and, and, and what they have in terms of upside, that's where I do look at this thing and say, I, I don't know. Uh, so it might be more of the, of the tight end factor. And maybe we see these, you know, these fourth round tight ends and Charlie Kohler and Isaiah likely, you know, uh, do some nice things for them. Of course, you're going to need uh, at least one or two of those young receivers to step forward, but is it going to be enough? Because inevitably you can talk about defense. You can talk about your running game. You can talk about all those different factors of, of football in today's day and age. There's going to come a point for the Ravens that they're going to have to go toe to toe with another high octane offense and they might be behind and I'm not saying you plan for that, but you just know reality. Are they going to be able to do that if they have to throw the ball going head to head with a Buffalo, with a Kansas city, with a Cincinnati come January. And that's where I look at this group of pass catchers. And I just don't know if it's going to be quite enough, even if you do that. Cause I think even last year had they gotten in and, and Lamar never gets hurt you would have been looking at that cast of receivers and still wondering. So you subtract Marquise Brown, who was a thousand yard receiver. And even if Bateman takes a step, is it still going to be enough? And that's where right now I'm not ready to say that I think it's going to be. And of course the key for the Ravens is we want to get that defense back to where it was. Defense dropped from fourth overall in DVOA per football outsiders to 28th last year. Now, of course, Luke still fourth against the run. That's the bread and butter. My question here is, what about the secondary? Can you get pressure on the quarterback this year and really tighten up that secondary? Like you said, injuries really hurt them there. 
Well, I, I think it's almost going to be the back, the backwards approach that they've basically, that's been their philosophy the last few years. They've really built their defense from the back forward with their secondary, which is very much an analytics-minded approach to value coverage before pressure and the idea that you can cover and you can scheme pressure. And if you cover on the back end, you can help that edge rusher get to the quarterback. And I think they're going to try to do that again. Unlike wide receiver, I think edge rusher has upside. You know, certainly with Adafi Owe coming into year two, and, and he did some nice things last year. Uh, they drafted David Ajabo in the second round, who before the Achilles injury on his pro day was uh, a pretty popular first-round pick. In fact, some people had mocked him to the Ravens uh, in the middle of the first round. So, But is he going to be ready in October, November? If he's on the field, is he going to give you enough juice as a pass rusher? And, oh, yeah, their, their top outside linebacker Tyus Bowser coming back from an Achilles tendon injury sustained in the regular season finale last January. So there's upside, but what's it going to look like early in the season? Uh, so I still have my concerns about the pass rush. I still could see a, a Justin Houston, Jason Pierre-Paul type addition, uh, which, you know, the Houston played for them last year. Pierre-Paul visited with them recently. So I could see that, but it's really going to come down to the secondary. And Marcus Peters coming back healthy, uh, you know, from the ACL. We'll, we'll, we'll see how he looks. Marlon Humphrey's already back on the field from the, pack, the the torn pec injury, so that's not a concern. And you know, the the safety position, they they give seven, a seventy million dollar contract to Marcus Williams of the Saints, and then oh yeah, they draft Kyle Hamilton, who a lot of people thought was one of the three or four best players in the draft. So they're loaded at safety. So I think you're going to see them really try to use a lot of simulated pressure, a lot of disguise, which is something they've done in the past. And they have a new defensive coordinator, Mike McDonald, but he had been in Baltimore before. So I don't think it's going to be a night and day kind of difference from Wink Martindale, but some changes, some tweaks, but it's still going to really be, they're, they're going to f fancy themselves, pride themselves in being able to cover on the back end and confuse quarterbacks and make quarterbacks move their feet hold the ball an extra split second longer, and then hope uh, they can get to the quarterback. Because again, I like the long-term upside uh, of that group, but not even knowing if Bowser and Ajabo, you know, when they're even going to be ready to play, let alone if they're going to be, you know, at their full strength. That's where the pass rush is definitely, you know, that's, that's the big question as it pertains to the defense. But I do expect the defense to bounce back in a big way and, you know, be back in that you know, more Ravens-like territory of being a, at least a, a fringe top 10 unit. That would kind of be where I expect them, and I think they have uh, the potential to be better than that. Lights out, Luke. Great stuff. One more question. We'll get you out of here. Don't look now, but the Ravens actually have the 11th easiest schedule per opposing win totals there, getting the fourth-place AFC North schedule, which you may never get for, for who knows how long, is certainly a rarity. Over under nine and a half wins. Talk about the schedule, and like you said, you already alluded to it, how you think the season's going to go for the Ravens. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a very reasonable schedule. And a lot of Ravens fans were unhappy because it doesn't have a lot of primetime prime time games on it, but players, and more so the coaches, will tell you, Sunday 1 o'clock games are music to their ears because it just keeps you in your routine. And I always say, you know, a, a more ordinary regular season can help you have a more exciting and special January uh, in that way. So I think that works to their advantage. I think the AFC East, which they their first four games are against the AFC East, that's such a beauty is in the eye of the beholder type division beyond Buffalo. You know, some people like the Jets a little bit more than than, than they have in recent years. We'll see. I'm not necessarily saying I feel that way. Uh, but Miami, certainly the position player talent, it's all about Tua, right? I mean, the defense has improved, all of that. Uh, and, you know, I mean, the, the Patriots, are they more like the team they were the first two-thirds of last season or more like the team that struggled down the stretch last year. So, you know, you have that. 
you know, you, I, I think it's a very reasonable schedule in terms of, you know, they, they play the NFC South. It'll be tough back-to-back weeks, Tampa Bay and New Orleans on the road for, for prime time, but then they get their bye. And I think down the stretch, lots of AFC North games, but you know that you can't complain about that. So I think the schedule is very reasonable for them to bounce back. And I, I kind of put them in that 11 and six territory. That's where I kind of feel for them right now, knowing that there's just a lot of uncertainty with coming back from the injuries. But I also think that'll be good enough to win the division, which I'm not counting out Cincinnati by any means. But you, you asked me to talk about the Ravens schedule, which I think is very reasonable and fair when you look at it. Take a look at Cincinnati's post-buy uh, schedule. It's uh, Luke, brutal. Luke, we talked to Jay Morrison about this last yeah. week. It is absolutely yeah. lethal, that second-half schedule. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so that's where I look at them. And, and I don't think the Bengals are going to fall apart. I, in fact, I think the Bengals will be a better team than they were a year ago because you know they have so many great young players that are getting better. But I think you just look at the back half of that schedule after their bye. You know, I, I could see the Ravens being 11 and six and the Bengals being 10 and seven and both teams making the playoffs. But, you know, I, I certainly uh, I feel good about the Ravens. You know, I'm not ready to put them up there with a Buffalo, you know, at, at the top of the AFC. Uh, still some questions they need to answer, but I think they'll bounce back. And I certainly think it's the Ravens and the Bengals to beat uh, in this AFC North where you know Cleveland with Watson. I mean, who the heck knows with 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 that situation and Pittsburgh. I like everything. You know, most things about that roster except the quarterback position. And, and if you don't have that, it's even a Mike Tomlin coach team. It's tough for me to think they're going to be uh, better than 500 ish without uh, knowing what they're going to look like uh, at the most important position on the field. This is great stuff, Luke. Thank you so much, folks. Luke Jones, WNST, BaltimorePositive.com. Must follow on Twitter, Baltimore Luke. Known him for a while. He's come on several times to talk to me. Just gave us great nuggets here as we get ready for 2022. Fantasy world here, Luke. We're very interested in the Ravens. Lamar, the Konami code, the rushing upside. You have depth at running back. You just need it healthy. Mark Andrews, of course, who destroyed me in Scott Fishbowl. I did not have him <laughs> last year. Put up the 40 points there at the end of the year. But great insight. Really appreciate a few minutes here for our 4-4 preview. Thank you so much. No problem, Mike. Glad to do it. We'll talk again. We're going to one of the biggest teams in the NFL, the New England Patriots. So many questions, so much history, great accomplishments here for the Patriots, but definitely need an expert. And that's what we have certainly in Penn, in Ben Folan, the senior NFL writer at the Boston Globe, contributor in WEEI, NBCS Boston, covering the NFL since 2007. I followed Ben's work for years. Amazing insight, can analyze and give us the nuggets that we need here to get ready for the NFL season. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Folin, B-E-N-V-O-L-I-N. Ben, thanks so much for joining us today. How you doing? Doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, let's take a look. Last year for the Patriots, 10-7, and seven, lost in the wild card to playoffs to Buffalo, but there were some big moments last year. Battle with Tampa Bay on Sunday Night Football was fantastic. In our world, Ben, big cover there. You may not want to talk about that. It was a big cover with the point spread as well. Dallas overtime game. Buffalo went at home with the three pass attempts. That was historic. One of the greatest games I've ever seen with that accomplishment. They did lose three of their last four to close out the regular season, but you can never say the Patriots are going to have a down year. I certainly can't say that. How are the expectations coming into this season? Uh, they now have the Bills as sort of the team they're looking up to, which is rare in New England, but how do you see expectations coming into this year? Yeah, you know, I think big picture, uh, the expectations should be pretty high for the Patriots to go 10-7 and with a rookie quarterback. 
you and with a whole basically new roster, especially on offense, they went out and had that free agency splurge uh, before the 2021 season. You know, Hunter Henry, Nelson Aguilar, uh, Kendrick Bourne, on and on. So you'd think it would all come together nicely in year two. And so I, I think in that sense, the expectation should be high. On the other hand, you look at what they did this offseason, and it was status quo. Um, they really didn't spend hardly any money in free agency. The the only real pickup they made that I think could have a, a real impact on offense is Devontae Parker, uh, the receiver from the Dolphins, should should give the, the Patriots what they thought they were going to get from Nikhil Harry, a big outside box out jump ball type of receiver for Mac Jones, who could be very helpful in the red zone. Um, the issue with Devontae Parker, of course, has been staying on the field. I think in seven seasons in Miami, he only had one complete injury-free season, uh, and he's just constantly in and out of the lineup. So, and, ben, and Ben, that was when he needed a contract, right? It's amazing well, how that hey, contract year does that, right? Hey, whatever it takes. So he's got two years left with the Patriots. Um, I, you know, that could be a nice addition for them, but the fact that they did so little in free agency and just in roster building in general this offseason – you know, it, it does feel like a lot of the other AFC teams have kind of passed them by. Certainly, I don't think they've closed the gap with Buffalo. And you mentioned, yeah, they, they beat Buffalo on that crazy night um, in Orchard Park where the, the Patriots only had to throw uh, three times. But then they played them twice in relatively normal weather, and the Bills blew their doors off both times. The Patriots didn't get a defensive stop in either game. Um, you look at what the teams in the AFC West have done. It, I mean, they all look better than the Patriots right now. The Dolphins, all the speed they've added. And it just, the, the Patriots at the end of the season, um, they look like a team that just didn't have enough on offense. They, they still, despite all their spending last year, have a bunch of number two and number three receivers, don't really have that elite playmaking ability where you look at the teams that were in the final eight last year. They, you know, Stefan Diggs, Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams, they all had that big time elite caliber receiver and i'm just not sure the patriots are there yet so you wonder is that going to be enough for mac jones in year two the patriots did they make enough changes on defense to be able to to come up with some stops now on josh allen so to me they just look like the same team as last year you know nine ten wins competing for a wild card but not realistically uh competing for the the championship of the afc Ben, I have to ask, do we have an offensive coordinator? Does that matter? Maybe it doesn't matter. We're all sort of sitting here filling in our draft kits saying, wait a minute, who's the Patriots offensive coordinator? What does it look like here on the offensive side of the ball? Josh McDaniels now no longer with team out with the Raiders. Yeah, it's the first time in a decade that McDaniels is not the, the offensive coordinator and the quarterback's coach. I mean, he ran the offense, no question. And uh, so big changes afoot. They won't have an official offensive coordinator because Bill Belichick loves keeping us all in the dark and not using official titles. But by all accounts, it looks like it's going to be Matt Patricia, um, really, because he's frankly, he's Belichick's right hand man. And I think that's who Belichick just trusts the most. Um, they haven't done a great job of developing young coaches. They've lost a lot of coaches the last few years and, and they don't really have anyone in the pipeline. So Patricia is going to coach offensive line, and I believe he's going to call the plays. That's what it looked like during uh, minicamp, whenever it was 11 on 11s, and and they, you know, get in the huddle. Mac Jones was always looking at Matt Patricia, who'd put the walkie-talkie up to his mouth and call the plays. Now Joe Judge coming back from the Giants, he's going to be heavily involved. He's the quarterbacks coach. My my wonder is Patricia was a uh, upstairs press box coach last year during games. I wonder if he will maintain that. And so he'll be the guy calling the plays upstairs. 
And then um, Joe Judge will be kind of the point man downstairs on the sideline. That's just my my guessing at this point. Um, we're not really sure how it's all going to work because Belichick, like I said, loves keeping us in the dark. We'll see if it matters. That That's kind of the big question around here. It, it certainly is a bit strange that for a big year in Matt, for Mac Jones, year two, they don't have a, a you know they don't have anyone on staff who's ever called plays before or has coached quarterbacks before. So, you know, Belichick's theory is a good coach is a good coach, and that his system uh, can can uh, develop coaches and develop players. I guess it's all you know. We'll see how it all unfolds this year. If it doesn't work well, it's going to be a huge second guess, and it's something that we're going to be I think pretty critical of for for not putting a better staff around Mac Jones, but. Patricia is a, a pretty smart guy. Belichick obviously trusts trust him uh, and Joe Judge as well. So it, it'll be a big experiment this year to see how much that stuff all really matters. We'll get into Mac Jones in the passing game in a minute. I just want to get into the running back touches. In our world here, Ben, we just always say draft the cheapest Patriots running back because by the end of the year, they'll probably make their way up to be the lead guy. Damian Harris certainly looked strong as the lead back for quite a while, but he had some key fumbles, which was a problem. The Miami game sticks in my head right away. He went into the doghouse for a little bit. Then Ramondre Stevenson comes out as a rookie, played very well. You have James White back, Pierre Strong, really nice athlete. San Diego State picked in the fourth round, 5'11", 200 pounds, 210 pounds, 437 speed. Tell us how you think the touches will be. I mean, it's hard to guess in this situation, but if anybody knows, it'll be you. It is hard to guess. Um, Damian Harris is probably the lead candidate for the first down carries. Uh, he's not a, a, a three down back in this offense at this point. And he's in the last year of his rookie contract. So they're already preparing for the future beyond Damian Harris. Pierre Strong, I think, is the James White of the future, the third down running back. But Belichick does usually kind of redshirt those running back rookies just because you know, they ask a lot of those guys beyond just, you know, run through this hole. It's all about pass protection and um, they put a lot on the running back. And that's why you saw uh, them rely on Brandon Bolden a lot last year. Not that he's some great running back, but they know that he's always going to be in the right spot at the right time. And he actually did uh, contribute nicely, even though he's really supposed to be a special teams guy. So James White, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he starts the season on the PUP list. Coming back from a nasty hip injury last year, um, his contract, the way they structured it, makes it pretty clear they don't expect him to be ready for the start of the season. So I would not count on James White early. He'd be a guy just to keep an eye on. Um, I, I think Ramondre Stevenson is really the guy, though. I thought he had a terrific rookie season. Um, he, he, to me, is a three-down running back. They could use him in all situations, and I think early on especially he'll be the guy in passing down situations. He didn't have great numbers last year, but, again, I think that's Belichick not always trusting a rookie. Um, and when you look at the other options, I mean, there's J.J. Taylor. I don't know how much they really love him at this point because he had opportunities to get on the field last year, and they didn't give it to him. The guy I, I like. Uh, to, to break out this year is Ramondre Stevenson. Both he, he can do goal line. I think he can do third down. Um, they're, they're always going to use a, a committee, but uh, Stevenson, considering you know James White's hurt and, and strong is a rookie and uh, Damian Harris isn't much out of the backfield. To me, Ramondre Stevenson is the guy to keep an eye on. Yeah, Ramondre, 7.7%, 60% college target share at Oklahoma. Like you said, wasn't used a ton in, in the receiving game, but he did have his big moments there. Week 10 against Cleveland, 114 total yards, four reception, two total touchdowns. So there is a chance here, absolutely, and we like him as well. Certainly an agile guy, big guy, runs very hard. 
Mac Jones here, Ben. We always hear best shape of your life in, in, in training camp as you lead to the season. But by all accounts, this guy's a phenomenal worker, really has come in. He's ready to go this season. Curious about Mac Jones. Showed some signs last year, being able to make some tough throws, lead the team 13th overall in passing yards, which in this system, when you had one game where you threw three times, really pretty good. 13th in red zone accuracy as well. Does he take a step forward? You mentioned the receivers. Maybe no explosive guy, but Devontae Parker's here. Jacoby Myers, very productive. Couldn't get in the end zone really that much, but certainly had a lot of reception, some big games. Kendrick Bourne flashed against the Cowboys. Remember that great touchdown pass from Mac Jones. Hunter Henry, and someone I really like a lot, Jonu Smith, who I'm reading, is going to be evolved in, in many, many ways, or it can be a rusher near the goal line, et cetera. So Mac Jones passing game, what do you see here? Uh, yeah, I think a big step forward is is to be expected here in year two. Um, he had a really nice rookie season uh, overall, big picture, especially you know coming off a long co college season and then the pre-draft process and you're thrown right into the NFL and your body's not necessarily ready for it. So I just feel like your head is spinning your rookie year um, and you don't really know what to expect. It's the longest season you've ever had. So absolutely, I think uh, some time off now, this offseason is going to do him well. He's mentally in a better place, physically seems to be uh, doing much better. Um, I still wonder, I think the concern with Mac is, is his ceiling limited. Um, you saw it at the end of last year, you know, the, the, the win over Buffalo was great, but it also showed that the Patriots didn't have a whole lot of trust in him. And they they did fall apart, and especially he did too in December and January when the games got tougher, the conditions got worse. He, um, he's you can see he's got tremendous ownership over the offense. His um, his leadership is off the charts. The players all respect him all throughout OTAs and minicamp. I mean, this is Mac Jones's offense now, and um, early in the season, I think he's going to be terrific. The the key is can he last through the game the seventeen game season. Can he thrive in the, you know, cold, snowy conditions that are, uh, you know, common here in New England and, and Buffalo and other tough places? Um, and, you know, can, can he last uh, fit, you know, and then physically, too, like he's not Josh Allen. He's not a big runner. He's not big and physical and he doesn't have the big arm. So he he is a little bit limited physically. Um, it's not all fair to put the Patriots struggles last year on him. Like I said, he didn't have the elite talent around him that guys like Tom Brady and Josh Allen and Patrick Mahomes did. And that, to me, is still going to be a big question this year. Did they put enough around him? Uh, you know, you mentioned John U. Smith. I'm not, I'm not quite as high on him. I was really disappointed with how little he produced last year. Uh, all the talk about how they're going to get him involved this year, to me, that's just off-season chatter, trying to pump a guy up a little bit. Um I'm not going to take the bait on him. To me, I'm in wait and see mode, and you got to prove it to me mode with John New Smith. Um, so Mac, Mac is, I think, you know, intelligence wise, Mac is is right up there with any quarterback in the NFL. He's got this offense cold. Um, I think he's going to have a much better second season, but I do wonder if physically his limitations are, are still going to hold them back uh, when it you know when it gets to crunch time in the playoffs. Let's turn to the defensive side of the ball. Huge bounce back from 26 in defensive DVOA per football outsiders to fourth last year. And Ben, I think a lot of that had to do with that COVID year. People didn't realize how many players left the Patriots, opted out. So there really were personnel issues. But of course, you know, Belichick and the Patriots will be solid. And they were last year as well. 
How do they look this year? New draft picks coming in. And really, this is the foundation, the way the team is built. You said Mac Jones, not a huge arm here. So they're going to play good defense. They're going to run the ball, control things. But it really starts on that defensive side of the ball. I would expect another strong year for New England. Yeah, so it was a strong year. But it's hard to say that when they get to the playoffs in Buffalo – I mean, what they have seven possessions and scored seven times. I mean, the defense by the end of the year uh, was a shell of itself. Uh, and it wasn't just Buffalo. They played a Saturday night game against the Colts and the Colts jumped out to a 20 to nothing lead. And then when the Patriots get back in it, the Jonathan Taylor breaks a 70 yard touchdown run. Uh, I, I guess the biggest change this year is it looks like Dante Hightower is gone. Uh, they haven't re-signed him. He hasn't announced anything. I guess it's possible they could bring him back in training camp, but Belichick hasn't shown uh, an inclination yet to do that. Uh, again, I, I think the defense was similar to Mac Jones. It was, it was great for three months and then it all kind of fell apart. Matthew Judon was in the running for defensive player of the year through November and then went without a sack his final six games. Don't really know what happened there. Um, you know, I wonder if the Patriots, they did enough to, to increase their speed in the front seven. That was an issue at the end of last year. They did bring back Devin McCourty, which I like. Um, they, they lost their number one cornerback in J.C. Jackson. They let him go, and they all they've done there is draft a couple guys and um, uh, bring back Malcolm Butler. So I don't know. I mean, a lot of this season is based on, like, faith in Belichick, and he can get it done, and he can figure it out. And, you know, it hasn't quite been the same ever since Tom Brady left a few years ago. He hasn't quite had the same – magic touch uh belichick has with, with some of his roster moves so certainly some uh talent on defense matthew judon i would think should bounce back from the end of last year and should have a nice season christian barmore the defensive tackle was had a really great rookie season you expect him to take an even bigger step uh in his second year you love their their safeties that's kind of who the defense revolves around now with mccordy and adrian phillips and kyle duggar just really um uh, versatile players you can play in the box outside the box run defense pass defense um so they have pieces but just across the board offense and defense there there is just this feeling that they didn't do enough this offseason to really close the gap with the elite teams well ben this has been amazing stuff last question we'll get you out of here schedule and your projection eighth hardest strength of schedule per vegas opposing win totals eight and a half win total right there with the 17 game schedule how do you see the schedule this year playing out for the Patriots? Again, trying to move forward, close that gap with Buffalo. Yeah, the thing with the Patriots is when, you, especially now, like you play the win-loss game with Belichick, and they always pull off wins in the regular season games that you, you wouldn't expect maybe on paper. Um, I still, I think it's the exact same as last year. They're going to be in the 9-10 to 10 win range. They're going to be you know competitive in the hunt for a wild card spot, prop, maybe probably even make the playoffs, but I just don't see them getting past the wild card round. I don't see them being on the same level as the Bills and the Chiefs and even now the Raiders and the Titans and the Bengals. I mean, there's so many. The AFC is stacked now, um, and, and I just don't see the, the Patriots getting there. Uh, they, they have some difficult games. That, you know, They go at Lambeau Field this year. They open the season in Miami in September. That's always been brutal for them. Uh, they have a stretch in December that I know where they're on the road for a week. They go at, at Arizona, at uh, Raiders. Those will be two big games in prime time. They play on Thanksgiving this year. I haven't done that in a long time. Uh, so definitely, as you mentioned, a difficult schedule on paper. They play a lot of good mobile quarterbacks like most teams do at this point. 
And and I just don't see how they've closed the gap with Buffalo. It's to me, it's the Bills and everyone else. And I think with the Patriots, you're really concerned about competing with the Dolphins, who um, have had their number the last few years. And I I, I thought uh, probably shouldn't have fired their coach and should have kept things going there. But um, to me, yeah, the, the Patriots will be competing for a wild card spot, and I'd be shocked if it's anything more than that this year. Folks, great insight as always from Ben Folan. At B-E-N-V-O-L-I-N, senior NFL writer for the Globe, contributor to WEI, uh, NBC Sports. Boston does an amazing, amazing job. Gave us some great insight there. We appreciate the fantasy comments as well with Ramondre. We're going to go write that down, Ben. Thank you so much. Have a great season. Really looking forward to it. The Patriots are always in the mix. They always find a way to get in the mix, and we'll see how it goes this year. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you, Rabbit.